0: There we go, all right, batteries, those are essential. Acts chapter one, we're gonna continue in our series. Um, we're gonna look at the next several verses. So we're gonna be in verse six through 11, and we're gonna take our time walking verse by verse through the book of Acts, all right? One of my favorite scenes in one of my favorite shows, don't judge me, is Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso, there's a scene where Sam gets absolutely demolished on the pitch, and Ted, the coach walks over to him, he says... Sam, Sam, do you know what the happiest animal on earth is? A goldfish. He says, a goldfish has a 10-second attention span, so Sam, go be a goldfish. Well, according to research, the average attention span of an adult human being today is 8.5 seconds. They say that our attention span has decreased by 25% from 2000 to 2015, and they actually say that our attention span is shorter than a goldfish, so... Don't be a goldfish, be a human. See, instead of getting traction, we tend to get distraction. We tend to find ourselves looking from one thing to the next thing, and and we get distracted like squirrel, right? We get distracted by the tyranny of the urgent. Some of you have checklists for your checklist so that you can check things off your checklist and make yourself feel good about your checklist. Others of you, you check your email all day long because it makes you feel like you're accomplishing something. When research will tell you that it's actually the least productive thing that you can do with your life, that you should actually set out blocks of time where you check your email and never check it throughout the day. There's this little thing in our pockets called an iPhone that has become one of the most destructive elements on the planet because it's robbing our freedom of intentionality and it distracts us. The reason why most of us settle for what is instead of what could be is because we're distracted by the tyranny of the urgent. We, we look at the thing that's right in front of us, and this is exactly what happened to the disciples. If you actually look at this narrative, instead of the disciples looking at what could be and what, what God wants to do, they're distracted by what's right in front of them. See, if you want to get everything you can out of life, you have to learn how to focus on things. You have to learn how to discipline yourself to do the first things first, to do what matters more than anything first. By the way, researchers, researchers, if I can just tell you to distract you really quickly, I think they're wrong about your attention span. Jordan Peterson, here's what he says. He says that the most famous journalist on the planet right now is Joe Rogan, and he does long-form podcasting that's over three hours long, and people are dying to listen to it. Y'all, it's not a matter of you're just distracted. It's, it's a matter of the fact that you're not focusing on the right things. And if you would take the time to focus less on the, the things that are right in front of you and the things that matter most, and you learn how to do that, what you'll see is that God wants to do incredible things in your life. So let me show it to you. All right, Acts chapter 1, verse 6 is where we pick up. So when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, meaning Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Remember last week? Jesus had just got done telling the disciples, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the spirit of God to be poured out on you. He takes 40 days and he teaches them something specific. If you actually go back to verse three, you'll see it. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. And the very first question that these guys have is not God, when are you going to restore your kingdom? The very first question is, God, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Yo, know, God wasn't interested in restoring their kingdom. He was interested in restoring the kingdom, and he just spent 40 days telling them that stop worrying about what's right in front of you and see the big picture. See the forest through the trees. I've got something bigger going on here. If you really want to get real, Jesus didn't just spend 40 days telling them about this. He spent three years. The very first thing that Jesus declares when he comes is, behold, the kingdom of God is here. See, he had spent three years discipling his people that he's not here to establish the kingdom of Israel. He's here to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, even whenever he teaches them to pray, right? Lord teaches how to pray. Great. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me just be real with you. The number one thing that is vying for your heart, the reason why you're so distracted is because, and I don't, I'm not trying to be mean, but it's because we're, we're inherently selfish. We tend to just think about what's right in front of us. I was actually listening to an, uh, an interview the other day with one of the presidential candidates, not to be named, and, and here's what he said. He said, we have to stop focusing on what's going on in the ro- world around us. You have to stop focusing on the big picture, and we need to start focusing on ourselves again. Stop caring about what's going on in other countries. Start caring about what's going on here, y'all. That is a distinctly secular ethic, and Jesus came to bring an entirely different ethic. You see, in God's economy, in God's economy, it is we before me. In our economy, it's me before we. If you, want, if you want to see how Jesus does things, it's the last will be first and the first will be last. It's an entirely different ethic. And what Jesus wants his people to know, and this is so important, is that God's kingdom is not monolithic. God's kingdom is multi-ethnic. You see, the kingdom of Israel was monolithic. It was all about one people that was selfishly centered on one group. And Jesus is like, I didn't come to save your people. I came to save the world. See, God's kingdom is about Revelation 7, a vision from people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God's kingdom is about him building an empire that will change the world. Let me show you a couple of passages of scripture. Matthew 28, very last thing that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations. John 3, 16, most famous passage in the scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, the verse that we never look at is verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. How about Mark 13, 10? The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. See, the reality is, is the gospel is not a Western monolithic religion for one set of people. The gospel is a multinational human relationship where the savior of the world is bringing people back into relationship with him and he's building his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, not yours. And the church, the church is supposed to be a signpost to that kingdom. And this is why I love our church. Y'all, I can look around the room right now and some of my friends from Korea, uh, Mexican, uh, Kenyans, Nigerians, uh, we we have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that are showing up here. And I love it because that's what it's supposed to be. Y'all, the church is filled with people, people from different backgrounds, different lifestyles that have literally nothing in common other than the gospel, but the gospel has become our primary identity. See, when we live When we live for the lamb that was slain and the lion of Judah instead of the elephant and the donkey, we tend to see that God does something greater than you could ever imagine. He's building a better kingdom. I'm telling you, I am telling you, Jesus isn't interested in restoring the kingdom of America any more than he is interested in restoring the kingdom of Israel. He is interested in restoring the kingdom of God. And the way he does that is when his church, like St. Augustine said, lives like a city within the city. Jeremiah 29 says the same thing. God has you to be his signposts. So let let me give you four characteristics really quickly of what God's kingdom looks like. Now, I know there's a million of them, but let me just give you four. Number one is this, God's kingdom is eternal. It's eternal. You see, what you have to understand is that every single earthly kingdom has a time stamp on it. Even the greatest empires of world history have come and gone. The Mesopotamian Empire is gone. The Alexandrian Empire is gone. The Roman Empire is gone. Listen to me, the American Empire will be gone one day. The kingdom of God will never be gone. And the point here is, is God wants you to live for something that's going to last for all of eternity. That God's kingdom God's kingdom will never end. And can I just tell you this cuz we got to get out of our western mindset? God's kingdom will not be a democracy as good as that is. It's going to be an autocracy run by the greatest king that has ever existed, a benevolent, good God that will never let you down. Will never overpromise and will never underdeliver. The reason that this is super important is because God wants you spending your life building his kingdom. A kingdom that will last. He wants you to build his kingdom here. He wants you to build his kingdom in your family. In your workplaces, in your neighborhoods. He wants you to build his kingdom everywhere you go. Here's number two. God's kingdom will be on earth. See, if you actually look at the the meta-narrative of scripture, if you will, those 66 books written by 40 different authors over thousands of years, it's telling one complete story. And in Genesis chapter one and two, God tells you that He created you to be in relationship with Him on earth. And then if you actually fast forward to Revelation chapter 21, what do you see? God's kingdom is going to come down on earth as it is in heaven. He will be our God. We will be his people, and we will live with him. There will be no more hurt nor tears anymore, for he will be our God, and we will be his people. And then if you actually finish reading it out, what you'll see is that you'll see rivers that run. You'll see a tree of life in the garden. It is a picture of God restoring the things of the way that they were always supposed to be. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because it matters for how you live now. And God's not going to do away with our earth. He's going to actually be here with you on it. I love this. If you actually look at verse 11, Acts chapter 1, verse 11, listen to what it says. Uh, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go to heaven. How did Jesus go to heaven? In a physical body. How is Jesus going to come back? In a physical body. Why does that matter? Because too many of us have this what we call Platonic view of heaven that one day you're just gonna be this disembodied soul sitting on a cloud playing the harp and Chris Tomlin music. That's not what it looks like at all. It's a terrible view of heaven. The way that the Bible describes heaven is you're gonna be on earth in your physical body doing what you do right now and you're gonna enjoy it the way that you were supposed to without sin. Think about how amazing that is. By the way, do you realize that if this is true, and it is, you don't need a bucket list. Like, you don't need to achieve all these things that you want to achieve now because, listen, you're going to have all of eternity to do that. Can you imagine Augusta National, as beautiful as it is, without sin, corrupting it? Like, you're going to be able to climb Mount Everest one day. Who knows? You might fly up there. I mean, you don't have to do everything now. The reality is, is if you get a biblical picture of what the kingdom of God looks like, you'll focus on what matters most now. Number three is this, God's kingdom is multi-ethnic. The mistake the disciples made is they thought that they were the only people, that God came to restore the nation of Israel. The reality is, the reality is Jesus came to adopt all of his people into his kingdom, and now the, the, the people of God is the church. See, this church is supposed to be a worldwide multicultural family that's united around the gospel. Hey, listen to me, the church is meant to be a signpost to the kingdom to come, okay? You are a part of God's kingdom. That means that we are supposed to build a real family that is global and it's present right now. Stop telling people what heaven's gonna look like and tell them that they can experience it now. Second Corinthians five seventeen. one of my favorite verses. If anybody is in Christ, they are a new creation now. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. You can start living for God's kingdom now. See, church, the kingdom of God is already established, and yet it's not fully realized. It's like they're colliding together, like the present reality and the future to come are meeting together, where God is going to bring his kingdom down. You are a kingdom builder. What you do here is you don't just show up on Sundays. You're actually building God's kingdom. You're building something beautiful and eternal, and you're showing the world what they all want, and yet they don't have the resources to accomplish. All right, back to verse seven. So they asked the most ridiculous question ever, and Jesus says to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, you're focused on the wrong thing. You're focused on when, when you should be focused on what. You want to know when God is going to fix this world. You should know what I'm going to do. By the way, let me, just, let me just address this really quickly, okay? Because we all want to know when. Everybody wants to know when's the world going to end. Can I just tell you what the answer is? Nobody knows. So don't worry about it. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Maybe a passage of scripture you should reference and go back to. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that they may do all that this law, do all the words of this law. Listen, there are certain things that God just doesn't want you to know. He wants you to trust. And and that's the point. If you knew how everything was going to go, you would not have to trust him. So let me save you some time and some money, okay? This one's free. All those end times books and prophecy conferences and seminars that you like, that people are piling up to go to, they are just a big old pile of poo-poo. They're just rubbish. None of it is real. Jesus already told you that the secret things belong to him and that only he knows. So stop worrying about it. What he wants you to do is trust. And then the key conjunction, but. See it in verse 8? But. But. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Stop worrying about when I'm going to restore the kingdom of Israel because i got something even better for you. That's what I want you to focus on, he says. Don't worry about when I'm coming back. If you can read between the lines, it's this, because I'm never going to leave you. Remember the parallel passage in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and then Behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. That's the promise. Stop worrying about when I'm coming back because I'm not leaving. I'm going to give you a power that will turn the world upside down, and that power is me living inside of you. Listen, did you realize that by the end of Acts chapter 1, there's about 120 people sitting in an upper room in Jerusalem scared to death. The power of the Spirit comes upon them. By the end of Acts chapter 2, there are thousands of people worshiping God, and the church has now been birthed. Because God, when God pours out his Spirit on a place, everything changes. Historians will actually tell you that the church grew by 40% year over year for the first three centuries, and by the end of the third century of the Roman Empire, there was approximately 33 million people who had come to faith in Jesus, and it was approximately one-third of the world's population at that time. Spirit of God isn't breathed out yet. There's 120 people scared to death in Jerusalem. God breathes out his spirit on the place. And 300 years later, a third of the world is worshiping him. I'm telling you, God wants to have an explosion happen whenever you believe that he actually can. See, if you go back, by the way, and you go back and you actually look at the research, what we tend to believe is that you have a few extraordinary people that changed the world. It's not true at all. The apostle Peter, as extraordinary as you might think that he is, he preaches a sermon, and it's one of the most amazing sermons you'll ever hear, and about 5,000 people come to faith, and listen to what the response was. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they are uneducated, common men, they were astounded, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Y'all, this guy, the apostle Peter, just days earlier, was scared to death of a middle school girl and he denies Jesus three times. Here's the point. The kingdom of God is not built on the backs of extraordinary people. They're built on the backs of ordinary people who are empowered by an extraordinary God. And some of you need to start to understand that God wants to release his power on you to change this world. And when God's power comes upon you, everything changes. That word power, it's the word that we get the word dynamite from. It's an explosion that happens, and God wants to make an explosion on this world through his kingdom, through you. you know, as long as, we, as long as we try to change this world through intuition or education, what we will find is that you will lack the power to actually do anything significant. God doesn't need your resources. He needs your submission. He needs you to understand that he can do all the work if you'll just make yourself available. It is really that simple. So here's what it's gonna take. I wanna give you, again, some practical things. Here's what it's gonna take for us to be a movement of God within the city if God's gonna pour his spirit out on here. Here's number one. It's gonna take a group of people who are desperately asking the Lord to pour out his spirit on this place. Can I just ask you, when was the last time you prayed that God would pour out his spirit on City Church in the city of Alpharetta? When was the last time you prayed that God would do his work here? And you know, I've told you this before. I, s- I actually stopped praying that God would save my kids. I know that sounds like heretical, but I actually don't pray that anymore. I pray that, God, you'd pour out your spirit on my kids. The reason why is because if he pours out his spirit on my kids, he's going to save my kids. And then they're going to become an entirely different type of people. They're going to be the type of people that can actually change the world. They're going to become the type of people that have the fruit of the Spirit. They're humble. They're kind. They're confident. They're going to be the type of people that embody this this idea of living for the eternal instead of leveraging their lives for the temporary. So they're going to become more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, more self-controlled. So what if we did the same thing? What if, practically speaking, what we did is we asked, God, would you pour out your spirit on this place? Would you make us spirit-filled people? And would you change us as we walk with you? Here's what that looks like. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the the, the great British uh, philosopher, pastor, physician, here's what he says. He says, when God pours out his spirit on you, it means that God will walk with you like a father walks with his son. It's like he's guiding you along like a good dad. Where he goes, you will go. What he does, you will do. It's like me and my five-year-old. As I walk and I hold his hands, he just simply trusts as I go. And when you do that, when you walk step-by-step with Jesus, amazing things happen. It's going to take a group of people who are desperately asking the Lord to pour out his spirit, where we don't become an event we attend, but a family we belong to, and we believe that God has built his kingdom. Number two, you have to be committed to being his witnesses. Don't miss the fact that the very last thing that Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends into heaven is he's gonna pour out his spirit on them so that they can be his witnesses. Think about that. If you knew that you had one last thing to say, what would you say? You'd probably say what you think is the most important thing to you. So that would actually tell you that Jesus's most important words ever recorded in scripture are that he's pouring out his spirit on you to go make disciples to go be his witnesses. Write this down. The way the kingdom of God grows is through spirit-filled followers of Jesus being his witnesses all over the world. By the way, do you know what the Greek word for witnesses is? It's actually a really interesting word. It's the word martus where we get the word martyr from. It's an interesting word. What does that mean? When you think about witnesses, what you tend to think about is like the court of law where somebody comes and they sit in a little box and they tell what they've seen and heard. But that's actually not the way the Bible uses the word witnesses at all. The way the Bible uses the word witnesses is like a representative. When God pours out his spirit on you, you decide to die to yourself because you're actually living to something else. That's the way that it does it. I can't think of anything more worthy to give your life to than that. So let me show you what it means to be a martus or a martyr or a witness for Jesus. Check it out. He shows you. He says, you will be my martus or my witness in Jerusalem in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Think of what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, hey, after I pour out my spirit on you, after I empower you with this, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You know what's significant about Jerusalem. It was a place that Christians weren't very well liked. Just 40 days earlier, they had killed Jesus. The Roman authorities, along with the Jewish authorities, had killed Jesus. And these guys are scared to death, hiding in the upper room. And Jesus comes to them and he says, that's where you're going first. You're going to go tell those people. The same exact people that killed me, I want you to go tell those people about me. Like, wait, wait, Jesus, what? what, what time out, time out, time out. They hate us there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's where you're going to start. Yes, they hate you. Think about dying to yourself. What would you have to believe about Jesus to go to the very same people that just killed Jesus and tell them the gospel? And yet, that is the kingdom ethic. Think about it. Think about it. The very first mission the church ever gave was the most powerful ethic in the entire world love your enemies love your enemy. Hey, well, here's how we're going to start this thing. I'm going to pour out my spirit on you, and I want you to go love your enemy. It's not about apologetics. It's not about telling the right truth and and all these things. No, it's about a kingdom ethic of loving them. And then, then Jesus takes it to an entirely new level. Okay, you're not just going to go and love your enemies. By the way, after I send you to Jerusalem, I'm going to send you to Samaria. You know what Samaria was all about? That was the group of people that they hated. So first, I'm going to send you the people that hate you, and then I'm going to send you the people that you hate. <laughs> Jesus, like I, that's that's how this whole thing is going to get kicked off. Like this huge racial tension here. You're going to go. Tear down the dividing walls of hostility because you're gonna show people that in my kingdom, and my ethic, everything that I have that is so loving and kind that I gave to you is actually what's gonna turn the world upside down. Think about it. Jesus says, you're gonna start off to a bunch of people that hate you. Then I'm gonna send you to a bunch of people that you hate. Like, what's going on here? You know, the gospel. The gospel is the power to unite the most broken places and systems in the world, and that's Jesus's mission, it's not that you would die one day and go off to heaven. It's that you would fix the broken systems of this world. Jerusalem was a system that was built on monolithic power. And, and, it was, and, and, and what Jesus is trying to show you is that there's a better kingdom. See, the Samaritan, this monolithic power was the same system of hate that was built in Samaria. And Jesus is like, no, no, worldly power always creates hate and division. Gospel power unites people. See, we say this all the time. We're about unity, not uniformity. Different, but united around something better than ourselves. And the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you breaks down the walls of hostility that separates people, and it creates a new kingdom ethic. So if you want to fix the world, you don't need to pursue power dynamics built on the systems of this world. You need to pursue the gospel. You need to die to your positions of power, and you need to be a witness in society that you live for a better kingdom. Y'all, can you think of anything more powerful than being a people that have absolutely nothing in common united around the gospel? People from different backgrounds and socioeconomics, even different worldviews, dying to themselves to live to a better kingdom centered around the gospel and not on their own power. So Jesus says, I'm gonna send you to people that hate you. And then I'm gonna send you to people that you hate. And then, then I'm gonna send you to places you can't even Imagine. And you're going to turn the world upside down to the ends of the earth. When you think about ends of the earth, what do you think about? North Korea, China, Russia. You realize you're the ends of the earth? Israel is centrally located on the world's map, and the gospel has gone out. 2,000 years ago, Jesus made a promise, and it's gone out. And yet, and yet, it's not done yet. According to research, there are over 7 billion planet, people on the planet right now, and only approximately 2.6 billion followers of Jesus. Y'all, there are, there's something called people groups. These people groups are not centered around countries, they're ethno-linguistic, meaning that they have a common ethnicity and language, and there's about 7,000 of them that have not heard the gospel yet. The name of Jesus has not gone there. And the last thing that Jesus says is that I need you to go to all the nations, which is, by the way, ethno-linguistic people groups, not nations like you think about. I need you to go to all the nations, and I need you to tell them about me. And there are 7,000 people groups, approximately 3 billion people who will live and will die without hearing the gospel. And I don't know about you, but I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with that. Especially knowing that God is ready and willing to pour out his spirit on this place and on the nation's. What if you were bold enough to pray the prayer of Proverbs chapter three, ask, ask, and I will give the nations as your inheritance. What if we did that? Maybe, maybe your Jerusalem is your neighborhood, this concentric circle that is closest to you. Maybe it's your kids or your family. Like, what if you just started there at your home base, sharing the gospel, sharing the kingdom of God and being a kingdom witness there? Maybe it's the people who naturally don't like you. Yo, what if, what if we went to those people? Think about culture for a second. I don't know if you know this or not, but the American culture doesn't necessarily like the church. They think that we're anti-science, anti-intellectual, bigoted, homophobic. They think that we are antiquated in our beliefs. What if our Jerusalem was to simply love the culture that God put us in? Not to be a part of it, but to love it. Like, that's what the early church did. You realize that, right? They didn't change their ethic. They embodied the gospel and they were servant-hearted and they boldly proclaimed the gospel to a bunch of people who hated them. And they turned the world upside down in the midst of severe persecution. What about your Samaria? Yeah, who are the people and the places that you need to die to yourself because you naturally don't like them? Maybe maybe you still hold grudges about COVID, like the way that you disagreed with people. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's racial bias. I don't know what it is, but for all of us, we tend to have a Samaria that we need to die to ourselves, humble ourselves to build God's kingdom and not our kingdom. Like I tell you all the time, part of God's plan is to form his kingdom in you as he forms his kingdom through you. He's forming you, and then he's forming the world through you. What if you begged God, pour out your spirit on me to make me the kind of person that you would use? Now, here's the funniest part of the story, verse 9. And you got to kind of, you have to read it a little theatrically, okay? And when he had said these things, right? Think about these things. You're going to go to the people who hate you. You're going to go to the people you hate. And then you're going to go everywhere. When he had finished saying these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sights. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by him with white robes and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus gives them the most important commission ever given and he just kind of floats away into heaven. Y'all, you know, second, Jesus is sitting with his disciples, telling them, don't worry about when I'm gonna come back. What you need to know is that I'm sending you and I'm gonna empower you. And then the dude just floats off into heaven. And the weirdest thing is, as they're looking up like this, I shouldn't look into those lights. As they're looking up like this, they look down and two dudes looking like Gandalf are standing next to him. like, what are you doing? Wait, think about this. Why are you dumbfounded about that? He's already told you what to do. Here's what probably happened. Jesus spends 40 days with them, telling them about the kingdom of God. 10 days later, 50 days, um, he he goes, he ascends into heaven. And as he's ascending into heaven, he sits at the right hand of God. The father takes his rightful seat in the kingdom of God. And he looks down at these 120 people drooling out of the side of their mouth. Like, what am I supposed to do now? And he looks at two angels. He says, Go down there and tell those guys, I've already told them what to do. Stop standing around passively and get to work. And then remind them, I'm going to come back. Remind them, I'm not just leaving you alone. I'm going to come back. You know what the crazy thing is? Those 120 guys did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They went back to Jerusalem. They went in an upper room. They waited and they prayed for God to pour out his spirit on them. God poured out his spirit on them, and those 120 dudes became the greatest church planting movement in the history of the world. And from there, they actually went to Judea, they went to Samaria, and they went to the ends of the earth. By the way, that is actually the table of contents for the entire book of Acts. You get to the end of the book of Acts, Paul, Paul's gone to Rome but it's a cliffhanger. He wants to go to Spain. He tells us in the book of Romans. And Luke does this on purpose because he wants you to know the mission is not over yet. It's still going. City Church, you are a continuation of the mission and your role matters. Think about how amazing this picture is. If you connect the dots, the mission of God to build his church started in the book of Acts and it's still happening today. On August 12th, 2018, we constituted as a church and we became a part of that mission that's continuing today to do what God promised he was going to do 2,000 years ago. I love that. Thank you. Here's the danger, though. That can feel too big. And when things are too big, they become paralyzing. Like, how the heck can we, how the heck can we change the billions of people in the world? Right? Like, how can we solve poverty and global hunger and and oppressive regimes? It's just too big. Like Joseph Stalin, which you shouldn't quote very often said, the death of a million is just a statistic, but the death of one is a tragedy. We all know this is true. Whenever there's a world tragedy somewhere in the world, you don't connect to it, but when somebody close to you dies, you feel it deeply. You got to bring things down to a level in which you can feel it. Y'all, when things seem too big, we do nothing. So can you change the world? Probably not. Can you change someone's world? Absolutely. And if we all change someone's world, we'll change the world. Let me give you an example of this. A guy that you don't know, 17 years ago, a guy named Chris Drinker changed your life. You know how he changed your life? He invested in me. And 17 years ago, he took a kid who was hurting, decided that he was going to disciple that kid, that kid decided that God was calling him to be a pastor and he ended up planting a church and now the ripple effects are changing. See, Chris didn't try to change the world, he tried to change my world. And when he changed my world, he ended up changing a lot of worlds. That's how God works. Sometimes, sometimes the future just seems so big that we can't do anything. We get paralyzed by it. And when we get paralyzed by it, we do nothing. It's like whenever your debt becomes so astronomical that you don't even pay your bills because you don't know where to start. Here's the deal, though. Research will tell you that if you will just connect the dots, make it manageable, and do something, you can actually accomplish far more than you ever thought possible. Church, you don't need to change the world. You just need to start by changing someone's world. Like, what if you just did something? What if you decided, what if you decided that you were going to beg God to pour out a spirit on you and that you were going to invest in someone? I read this week that 83% of people go to church simply because they were invited by somebody close to them. You want to see people go to church? Build relationships. So here's how we're going to do it, City Church. We're going to invest in you. We're going to invest deeply in you. We're going to create systems to love our small group leaders because they're going to love you. And we're going to love our servant leaders. And we're going to create easy on-ramps for you to get into community. And all we want is for you to take a step, a step towards a relationship and to invest in A thing, and to invest in someone, and then God will take that thing and He will multiply it in ways that you can never imagine. God will change the world collectively. Don't get paralyzed by the fact that you can't do everything. Just do something. Like I told you last week, the most maybe there was never a more significant task in the history of the world given to less qualified people than the twelve disciples, and yet with God's Spirit poured out on them, they changed the world. And if they can do it, you can do it too. You can pray that God will pour out His spirit on you, and you can tell someone about Jesus. So let me just ask you, who is your one? Like as you think in your mind right now, who's the one person that you can talk about Jesus to? Who's the one person that you can invest in? What's the one next step that you need to take? Singular focus on the mission of God, and God will do the work. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. I'm going to show you this over the next couple of weeks, but the primary thing that they devoted themselves to, prayer and fellowship. They loved one another and they trusted the Lord. And as they did that, God poured out his spirit on them and everything changed. Listen, we can have the best strategies in the entire world, but if we don't have the power of God on this place, we will fail every single time. When we get plugged in, when we get plugged in and we Plug into God, everything changes. You can have the right systems. You can have the best small groups. You can have the best Sunday morning experience on the planet. But none of that will matter if God decides not to pour out his spirit on this place. And God has promised that if you will pray for it, trust in him, and lean into him, he will. you know, the spirit of God was poured out on 12 ordinary people, and the world was turned upside down. Imagine what it would look like if the 200 people that show up here on a regular basis asked God to pour out his spirit on this place. So let me encourage you really quickly couple things. Number one, don't get distracted by a mission that seems impossible. Because God makes the impossible possible when he pours out his spirit on this place. What you simply need to do is make yourself available. If you'll submit yourself to God, just like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, I'm here, Lord, send me. He'll do it. Like my old football coach used to say, the best ability is availability are you available to God? Here's number two. Don't become passive waiting on God. Don't become passive waiting on God. Jesus has already told you what to do. Like the angel of God said to the disciples, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? God has already told you. Where opportunities meet your ability, God tends to move in significant ways. And I'm telling you, there are endless opportunities, and you guys have endless abilities. The thing that tends to be killing most of us is passivity. You know, there's there's a psychological term that I've been studying a little bit lately called temporal discounting. Here's what temporal discounting says We have a difficult time connecting to our future self. And because we can't connect to our future self, we make decisions in the present without thinking about our future self. So let me give you an example. You partied like a rock star in college because you didn't know how it would affect your future self. Oftentimes, the same thing happens with temporal discounting, where we can't, we can't compute what's going to happen in the future, so we do nothing. The same thing is true with the passivity of our world. You can't imagine a future. So what do you do? Is You just do the, the tyranny of the urgent. Here's what Jesus said. I'm going to build my kingdom. I'm going to use you to do it. I already have a plan. The whole thing is going to work out. So just do something. (laughs) See, we sit on the silence in the mission, God, because we don't believe that we have anything to offer. And yet Jesus says, you don't have to offer anything. I'm going to pour out my spirit on you and I will do far more than what you could ever ask or imagine. You don't need to give more time. You don't. You need to intersect your time with the opportunities that God has already given you. See, you don't, need more pa- you don't need more talent. You already have enough. See yourself as being strategically used by God where he already has you. And share the gospel in those places. Maybe it's in your home. Think about the conversations that you could share on, at the workplace. Be that guy on an airplane. You know what I'm talking about. The person nobody likes right? They're stuck sitting right next to you. When they put in their Bose headphones and they ignore you, just pick them up, say something to them. I don't know if you should do that or not. (laughs) Y'all, just be curious. Can I just tell you, there's not a person on the planet that is struggling with over-encouragement. Just be curious. Ask good questions. People want to talk about themselves because nobody ever gives them the opportunity to. If you will, you'll find out so much about people. Don't be passive waiting on God. It's like Jesus is up in heaven looking down at you right now saying, what are you waiting on? I've already told you what to do. You don't have to wait on the spirit of God to be poured out anymore. It happened at Pentecost. It's available and ready for you. Take it and run. Here's number three. Be confident in your future. Jesus is coming back the same exact way he went, and that's the hope. He never left you, nor has he forsaken you, and he will build his kingdom. See, God wants to work through you. Our hope is that one day, the same way he went up is the same way he's coming, and he's coming in a physical body to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Listen, you cannot lose the whole thing is rigged. You're going to go to heaven, and heaven's going to be on earth if you're in Jesus. Here's my plea, though. Don't go alone. Don't go alone. Like You have the greatest gift imaginable. Go tell somebody about it. Jesus has lived your perfect life, died your death, and he's given you new life. And he is going to come back, and he's going to, like J.R.R. Tolkien said, he's going to make all the sad things become untrue. Don't you want your neighbors and your coworkers and your siblings to know the beauty of the gospel? There isn't a better time in our lives to tell people about Jesus than right now. I'm gonna quote my friend, because he's here today, John Jeroga, And I think he was quoting somebody else, but that's okay, you get the quote. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me what would it look like if that's the life you lived? God poured out his spirit on you and you told the world around, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. He died for your neighbors. He died for your coworkers. He died for your enemy. He died for the people on the other side of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know what he's waiting on? He's waiting on you to beg him to pour out his spirit on you. And then he wants to unleash you into every sphere of this world to turn this whole place upside down. What if you actually believed it? Father, I pray. I pray that you would give us the confidence to live for you. You died for us. We want to live for you. Help us to love you the way that you have loved us. Help us to share the gospel with abandon, to do just the next thing, to love the next person, to love our enemies, to love our neighbors. Help us to do something. And Father, we beg you, pour out your spirit on this place. You tell us, ask, and I'll give the nations as your inheritance. We're asking. We're asking, God. Boldly. And humbly, not for our sake, but for your name and for your glory, build your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And everybody said,